0: Hey everyone, Stephen here. I'm including this intro to this episode just to let you know of a few things about its recording. First off, we had an unforeseen and unavoidable audio glitch at about 20 seconds into the start of this episode, where we lost about 20 to 30 seconds of Karen introducing our guest, outlining what we will be talking about, and also offering a trigger warning. I'll take the time now to say that this episode deals with trauma. What trauma is, how it affects us, and how it can be triggered. We fully understand that a topic such as this can be unsettling, uncomfortable, and triggering for some people. We appreciate all of our listeners and thank you for coming this far with us. Some of the topics do include brief talks about sexual assault and other events. So if that is not appropriate for you at this time, we understand and this episode may not be for you. In which case, we encourage you to check out one of our other episodes and we will catch up with you on our next one. That being said, our guest for this episode was a good friend of Karen's who's a social worker, and his name is James. But due to the sensitive nature of his profession and confidentiality issues with his clients, we won't be getting into too much details. But I will say that he's a highly trained and experienced professional, and he had a lot to say here, and it was a pleasure to have him on the show to bring this info to you. But getting back to the audio glitch that I mentioned earlier, I did my best to edit around it, but it just wasn't happening so there will be what sounds like an awkward pause at about 20 seconds into the actual episode. I will timestamp it in the show notes, so you can skip ahead if you want to avoid that. Also, Karen and I are sharing a microphone again, so there will be some periodic volume inconsistencies, which was just unavoidable. So we do apologize for that. But if you're a member at the Yoga 360 Studio, just remind Candace to buy us another microphone, because we'd like to bring you the best quality product, and any little bit helps. So I'll stop talking now, and I hope you'll enjoy the show. This is the Yoga 360 Podcast.
1: We bring you knowledge, inspiration, and resources to help you live your best life.
0: We connect with students, teachers, and experts from the community to both educate and have fun conversations from the heart.
1: If you enjoy the benefits of yoga, value your health and well-being, and enjoy connecting with others, you're in the right place.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Yoga 360 podcast. I am Steve Cotton.
1: I'm Karanini. I'd
0: like to welcome everybody back for a new year with us here at the Yoga 360 podcast. This is our first episode of the year, and we've got a really special guest joining us tonight.
1: Yeah, so we're joined by my good friend James. Hey, James. Hello, how are you? I'm good. Uh, so James is joining us today because he is a social worker.
0: Okay, I'll just start it off by asking James, what exactly is trauma?
2: Yeah, so trauma, there's essentially two types of trauma. As it's become more of a common and buzzword of the past couple of years, there's what, if, what a lot of my colleagues like to refer to as small-T trauma and big-T trauma. Mm. That's not a value judgment on either one. It's more big-T trauma referring to the definition used in the DSM, so the Diagnostics and Statistics Manual for Diagnosing Psychological Issues. Um, so in that situation, the definition of trauma is actual or threatened death, serious injury, or sexual violence. Stressful events not involving an immediate threat to life or physical injury are considered significant stressors, but they're not considered trauma. However, when you see things that speak to trauma-informed practice growing up with trauma, I'm a big fan of Gabor Mate's definition, which is that trauma is a psychic wound that hardens you psychologically that then interferes with your ability to grow and develop.
1: Yeah, and I really, you shared that definition with us before we started recording and I really like it and I think it sort of really informs what we're going to talk about in that trauma is not just something that's happening in your brain, like this has real impact on your body and just how you move through life Uh, and that's really what we want to get into today.
0: Okay. Um, Also, can you tell us who uh, Gabor Mate is?
2: Yes. Gabor Mate is a physician. Um, He's a Canadian-Hungarian physician and has done a lot of work around, in public speaking, bringing the idea that people have all experienced trauma. For the most part, everybody has experienced some type of trauma in their lifehood, and especially as children. And that has a profound impact on how we navigate the world and how we experience life. And it's something that should impact how we approach treatment to mental health issues, ranging from addictions to health issues to depression.
0: Okay. Yeah, and I just ask that because I've seen and I've actually heard of him on other podcasts as well, too. And I know he has a, a, a big uh, source of material and resources as well, too, in this subject. So.
2: Absolutely. He's a very, very significant force in the addictions treatment world and the role that trauma has on addictions. Um, and, I mean, having worked in that field, you can really see how people consider previous trauma as a critical and necessary part of how we always look at addictions for people. It's rarely just a physical dependency or mental dependency. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, I want to circle back a little bit. You talked about childhood trauma um, I don't remember the exact wording at this point, but I saw a definition once that basically if you had a point in your childhood where you felt unsafe, uh, where you felt uncared for, where you weren't sure what was going on, you were uncertain, that has could have caused you childhood trauma and might still be carrying with you today. Is that does that sound right to you as well?
2: Yep, that's absolutely fair.
1: Um yeah, so I just kinda wanna call it out because I think, I mean, in coming to this from a place of I had a fairly significant amount of childhood trauma, but I think all of us to some degree experienced that when we were kids. We experienced a moment of not being sure we were okay, of not knowing what was up. I think a lot of us have experienced that, you know parents getting divorced or things happening at your school. All of this will have caused at least some impact on you. Um, So I just wanted to call those things out because I think a lot of people don't necessarily think of themselves as having trauma, uh, but I think more of us have it than we think. Does that make sense?
2: That does. And it kind of brings me around to another point that I read when reading about attachment theory recently, which does overlap with childhood trauma quite a bit. Mm. Um, attachment theory being the way that people form attachments both romantically and personally to others in their life. Mm -hmm. That
0: would be like the um, anxious or um, avoidant uh, attachment
2: style. Yes, the anxious, avoidant, disorganized, and secure. And... The point that came that I read in that is one of the difficulties people have in addressing that, and that crosses over to the trauma piece, as that is often a factor, especially as you get into more severe attachment challenges and into disorganized attachments, is people will say, you know, oh, I had a great child. My parents were lovely to me. They were always super kind, never raised a hand to me. And that very may well be true and that they were wonderful, but there can still be events that happen outside of their control that can be traumatic to a child even with the most well-intended parents, who've done nothing wrong, a child is seeing the world through a different lens than an adult.
1: Yeah, and I guess we could touch on this a little bit if you want to, and we can fully cut this out, but I think James and I have both experienced some trauma, and I think we have exactly opposite attachment styles, don't we, James? Yes, we do. So what is your attachment style, James?
2: I am, I'll say I'm a recovering anxiously attached person.
1: And you're doing great recovering from that. (laughs) I'm very proud of you. And what is my attachment style in your opinion?
2: (laughs) Um, can I of, say disorganized? <laughs> <laughs> I'd say disorganized. <laughs> disorganized or avoidant. Yeah. yeah.
1: So you can react in different ways that doesn't make you a better or worse person. It's just your reaction to things that have happened in your life, and that's okay.
2: And that they're not static. They can change from time to time. People mm-hmm. might be anxious, anxiously attached in one relationship and avoidantly attached in the next. Mm-hmm. Um, and just like trauma, those things are not static. People change as they grow.
0: Yeah, and I'll throw my hat into the conversation as well, too, because I've had both responses and kind of attachment styles as well, too. I've definitely had relationships and, and, and attachments where I have definitely been anxious, but then I've also had them where I've been avoidant as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: And without drifting too far off into a different subject, <laughs> the simplest definition I saw on an Instagram reel was anxious attachment is if someone doesn't text you in five minutes – you're going to text them because you're freaking out that they don't love you anymore. (laughs) And avoid an attachment is someone looks at you the wrong way. You've got the ick. They're done.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You've got the ick. (laughs) All right. Let's get back on topic. So I think I want to talk a little bit about what actually happens in the physical body when you have trauma. Um, Do you want to start us off on that, James?
2: Yeah, I can start a bit to it. And I will just start this off with a bit of a caveat that I'm more knowledgeable in the treatment side of things than the physiology of the injury.
1: I'm going to speak a little bit to the physiology yeah. side more because that is what I've done more research into because it's more applicable to when I'm teaching mm-hmm. yoga. Yeah,
2: <laughs> And I think an important thing to note is that a traumatic injury can have many causes. Mm-hmm. And when I say traumatic injury, I'm referring to an acquired essentially an acquired mental health or psychological injury. Mm -hmm. So someone can experience traumatic events or significantly stressful events, and that's when things like acute stress disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder, and adjustment disorder come into play.
1: So sorry to cut you off, but so what you're saying is if someone went through trauma in their life, a mental trauma, you still refer to that as an injury in a clinical setting?
2: Yes, absolutely. I think
1: that's significant. Yeah, yeah.
2: It's something that doesn't get touched on enough is, you know, if someone's in, for example, a car accident, mm-hmm. they, experience physical, they experience physical injuries, and they also have a trauma response and a depression response. Mm. They have maybe re, reactivity to motor vehicle related stimuli, seeing cars and shows. That's a part of the injury and a part that deserves treatment mm-hmm. and deserves as much attention as their physical injuries.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Could they also have like behavioral responses as well, too?
2: Absolutely. Um, I, we, we got hung up in the big T trauma definition, small T trauma definition, but I'll bluntly say it's often kind of irrelevant because a lot of the time, the difference between an adjustment disorder diagnosis and a PTSD diagnosis is whether that significant event with the actual or threatened death occurs or a significant stressor occurs, the latter being adjustment disorder. The treatments are often exactly the same. So it's there can be some little nuances in the injury and the severity of symptoms, but for the most part, it's not going to impact treatment to right. a significant level. And it's usually the same treatment programs treating people with either issue. Interesting. Whether or not people meet the criteria of one of those diagnoses or not.
1: So let's get back on track, defining finding what happens inside when we have drama.
2: <laughs> yeah, so I'll... Defer to you.
1: Okay. I'll talk a little bit about the physiological side. So one of the things that happens, and feel free to jump in and correct me if what I'm saying is incorrect or could be more clear. Um, To my understanding, our body doesn't understand why we're stressed. So one of the things I say when I'm teaching is, your body doesn't understand if you're stressed because of a work deadline or because a bear is going to walk out of the woods and attack you. As far as your internal body is concerned, it is the same thing. Uh, So what will happen is um, one of the first things that happens actually is all of your muscles are going to get tense. And if it is a prolonged trauma, if it's a prolonged stress, uh, that's going to keep going. So this is when it leads to fatigue and anxiety. Because think about it. All the muscles in your body are engaged and tensed and stressed. And after a certain point, they're going to become exhausted and ineffectual. And your brain's not going to work. Your body's not going to work. And it's just really a physical manifestation of whatever stress and trauma is happening in your body. Um, So that's one of the first things that happens. Does that track with what you know? (laughs) Absolutely.
2: It's that sympathetic nervous system system activation. Right. So the sympathetic nervous system happens when you need to respond to dangerous, stressful situations. And that's a normal and necessary thing in your everyday life. So essentially your nervous system goes into a mode where your heart rate goes up and becomes more reactive, Mm -hmm. delivers more blood to areas that need more oxygen, helps Mm -hmm. you get out of danger. Mm
0: -hmm. And that
2: even affects you to the point where your body wants to move Mm -hmm. and, or your body will freeze or your body will fawn and try to comfort things. Mm -hmm. And that's that fight or flight, which should be fight, flight, freeze, fawn response. Mm -hmm. And with prolonged trauma, people get essentially stuck in that cycle for longer periods. So whereas someone who's in a more normal nervous system state might hire the door knock as just an example. Their heart rate picks up, they get alert to it, they go check. It's just someone delivering something, their body comes back down. Mm -hmm. For someone experiencing prolonged trauma, that might not come down or that just might stay higher and take longer to decrease. Mm. And that's very taxing on your body and your mind.
1: It sounds exhausting. Like when you think yeah. about the actual, like every muscle in your body is more engaged. Um, another thing we mentioned sometimes in class is that like your rib cage will actually physically lower down. I don't know if this is because your body is protecting your internal organs more. That seems logical to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but it tugs things with it. So your shoulders hunch forward, like you're, you're rounding forward. It's harder to breathe. Your lungs don't have as much room to expand. Like these are physical manifestations of living in that fight or flight or freeze mode um and so i think one of the things that is really important for people who spend more time there or who have a door knock make them spend longer there is to be able to find some tools to shut that off and and to turn on the parasympathetic nervous system where um, your body is just more efficient at all the other things it needs to do like digesting your food and healing and helping you sleep um (laughs) Yes. <laughs>
2: Absolutely. It's a big part of the reason people experiencing trauma have issues with constipation and diarrhea and vomiting is their body is not processing everything properly.
1: Yeah, and we actually looked up, Steve and I were talking before we started recording about diarrhea, because it's, I think, one of the quickest um, things that we notice. Like, when you're stressed, you, you're going to have some... More runny fecal matter—that's just a fact.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, Stephen, do you want to talk about why that is?
0: Okay. Uh, well, from my understanding of it, the gut responds to kind of what's going on in the body by by releasing its own hormones and doing its own things, and the body wants to get uh, get rid of that, mm-hmm. right? So it just kind of expedites the process there in the um, the small and large intestines, and the result of that is is the diarrhea that you're talking about. Yeah. So. And some other things associated with that too are um, headaches and nausea as well too, which are quite common for a lot of people.
1: Yeah, so it literally will um, speed up the movements in large intestines and slow down the movements in the stomach and small intestines, uh, and it does it to do expel harmful toxins. But which is what the internet says. But which harmful toxins do you think they're talking about, James? Do you? Is that? Sorry.
2: Oh gosh, that's a little out of my purview. Mm. Um, I mean, we process a lot of toxic things in our bodies. Our livers, our kidneys are all flushing out stuff and our mm-hmm. bowels do too.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Most of food is waste and not good for us and can't stay in your body. But too, a lot of the bacteria that's needed to digest food isn't meant to stay in your body or go into other parts of your body. It's mm-hmm. a closed system. and. When that's out of whack, that can throw your health off.
1: You're not getting as much nutrients from your food. and nope. Yeah. Um, and I think it would really affect your stomach too, wouldn't it?
2: It does. And the other part that becomes a challenge with people experiencing trauma is often there's reduced serotonin. Mm-hmm. Um, and well, people usually think of serotonin as like your happy chemical, the main target of antidepressant medicines and such. Mm-hmm. But most of your serotonin in your GI. And it helps control bowel function, helps control gut, food processing, and helps rid your body of irritating foods and toxic products. Mm -hmm. when that's reduced, you're going to have increased issues with it. Mm -hmm. And that also speaks to the role of getting the parasympathetic system working. Mm -hmm. And as well as where, you know, that can have overlap with your treatment needs.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Absolutely. Could um, uh, just increased gastrointestinal activity could also be a result of just the elevated state of your parasympathetic system?
2: Of the sympathetic system, yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, The parasympathetic helps with the digestion and stuff. That's part of why when people are stressed, they get diarrhea.
1: So those are some of the physical manifestations in your body. Like I think the too long didn't read here is if you're stressed, if you have trauma, your body is on edge and tight and engaged all the time. Yeah. Or at least way too often, um, which leads to not enough nutrition, not enough sleep, not enough ability to breathe. We've talked about cortisol repeatedly on this, on this podcast, and, and it spikes that, which we know has so many far-reaching effects on the body. And it, it's not good, I think, is what we're getting at. <laughs> mm-hmm. um,
0: One other sign of, of trauma that I saw in some of my research was an overwhelming sense of feeling of guilt or shame mm-hmm. that some people can have. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, part of that, too, is trauma is exhausting. It's
2: incredibly exhausting. And if you have a job, if you're a parent, spouse, partner, friend, it impacts your ability to do those things. And people carry a lot of guilt in that. It's not uncommon for people to feel like a failure for parts of their life that they can't attend to. And that's an important thing that we need to get past because if we're going to treat people successfully, we need to make sure people feel safe and good.
1: Yeah, and, and so to put it more bluntly, you are treating an injury if you're treating your trauma. Um, so you need to treat it just like you would any other injury. Get some crutches if your foot is broken. Be a little nicer to yourself if you have some
2: trauma.
0: Yeah. So I'd like to get into a little bit of what types of traumatic events there are out there.
2: Yeah, I mean, just touching initially on the big T trauma as. And not a way to diminish other traumas. It's often where the biggest severe clinical responses are when we look at treatment of PTSD. So once again, to the actual or threatened death, serious injury or sexual violence. And this can be a perception thing, what threatened death can be. I mean, I do a lot of mountain sports and I've come (laughs) close to going over ledges before that hasn't been traumatic. And that same situation could be very traumatic to someone else. And I've had close calls that are traumatic and I can recall very clearly every detail to this day. Mm. Um, They can be, people often look for these grand situations like being in war or severe car accidents, things like that. But, and those are very much valid and real. It can also be very day to day mundane things like almost slipping and falling out of the tub can stick with you and put, profound Mm. changes to your life.
1: Or like choking on food, maybe, in Mm -hmm. your home alone, yeah?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think we all know people who can't eat certain foods because they had one bad experience with it, and there's a bodily reaction to that.
1: That is perhaps long-reaching.
2: Yes. Yes. And I'd say the biggest, probably the biggest, most far-reaching one is sexual violence. And something to be mindful of when you look at trauma-informed practice of all kinds is there's much more concise research from the States, but the rates for any kind of unwanted sexual attention that's reported. And keeping in mind that almost every agency and specialty group that works around violence against women sexual violence puts it at an estimate of 83% of women and 43% of men have experienced unwanted and significantly stressful sexual attention. And when we look at things like carried out or attempted sexual assault, it's at minimum one in six women.
1: So as the female on the podcast today, I want to say, I think it's really underreported for females, but also more so for men. Uh, And I think in your mind, if you've experienced something along these lines, you don't need to put a name on it. You don't need to feel like you were sexually assaulted. But if you had a relationship and the physical interactions with your partner were not something that you wanted to occur you might have trauma for that. Even if you don't want to seek help for it, even if you don't want to term it as an assault, it might have built up. It might be something that's living in your body that is not easy for you to walk with. Um, and that's just something to call attention to, I think.
2: Mm-hmm. And just to remind you too to everyone that if you have experienced that, that it's always never your fault.
1: So I think that's a big type of trauma as well. Are there any others we should touch on?
2: Yeah. And I think that's kind of, covering the biggest areas around the big T traumas. But then when you get to the small T traumas, you know, you can have close calls where you might hurt yourself almost minorly. You might get threatened with physical injury or something like threatened by a person at a store Mm. um, or in public or road rage where there's not that actually threatened death or serious injury and violence. But it's a significantly stressful event. And the significant stressors I think are more where you see that subjective response to it. One person's Mm -hmm. significant stressor is not another person's. Mm. And the same events in a slightly different setting can be a significant stressor to another person. Mm. And I think, too, that's where a lot of the... When we talk about childhood trauma in that small-t trauma way, that's where a lot of that comes into play. Interesting. Because something little like being lost for five minutes where you're not in any real danger or your parents were actually quite close, you Mm -hmm. just didn't think they were close... Mm -hmm might not be actual a threatened death or serious injury, but as a little kid, that's really scary. Mm -hmm. And that can have a huge impact on how you perceive life and safety with other people as you grow up.
1: Yeah, that makes total sense. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think before we started recording, you talked about how um, you feel that physical trauma to the body and the associated mental emotional trauma is often overlooked so if you have a long-term injury for instance absolutely yeah um, is often that part of the healing process is sometimes overlooked
2: and I think with physical injuries it's often people say physical injury but there's often a mental health injury there too Mm -hmm. if you were in a vehicle got in a car accident and there's emotional reaction there's reactivity there's any kind of trauma symptoms, that's part of your injury.
1: Well, I guess even if you twisted your ankle walking down the stairs, if your ankle hurts every time you take a step, is that not also a small T trauma situation?
2: Yep. Yeah. I mean, if you were in an accident and you broke a leg and an arm, and you'd be like, you wouldn't say, well, my leg's broken, but my arm's also broken, but that's not really a part of it. It's not a big <laughs> deal. But we do do that with mental health injuries. You'll say like, oh, yeah, but of course I'm stressed. I was in a car accident. But that's also something that deserves treatment and attention.
1: Yeah. And I think this is really sticking for me. You calling it mental health injuries is really sticking for me. Like that is an injury to treat. (laughs) You know, I've mentioned it a couple of times, but that's really sticking out for me. So thank you. Yeah.
0: And that can also happen to even if it's not happening directly to you as well, too. Like if you're a witness to something Mm. happening. Absolutely,
2: witnessed is very much a valid situation and can be valid conditions for even for PTSD diagnoses.
0: Mm. So, let's bring this back into how yoga can help with that. Karen, how can yoga help?
1: Well, in my mind, it helps a lot, and, and I want to be honest with myself in that because it has been so helpful for my traumatic issues, I probably have a really biased view of this because it's been so helpful for me. I think I can't help but think it's going to help everyone, which I don't think is necessarily true. Um, Stephen, I, I, I know you've mentioned you've had some trauma in your life. Did you find that your yoga practice helped you?
0: I think that it helped in a, in a degree i didn 't notice any significant changes, mm-hmm. but I noticed little things over over the time and I think just with like say like something is as, as simple as just breath management mm. it it definitely helped in that respect
1: mm-hmm. yeah, um, whereas for me, like I notice if i don 't practice enough on my own. I go right back into really bad traumatic responses um, and and it 's really heightened for me, so for me, it is a really important tool and for you, I think you 're saying it 's helpful, but
0: you mm-hmm. could have gotten help other ways uh, yeah, I think so
1: yeah, uh, James, what about for you how you you do practice yoga and and how is that for you?
2: yeah, I find for me that a lot of the calmer practice type stuff has been a huge benefit for me mm-hmm. it 's not the curative thing in my journey through trauma, but It's been a thing where as I've learned more about trauma professionally, it's become a good part of my regular health practice and self-care practice to help with managing my sympathetic responses and being better at improving skills to put me in a parasympathetic state.
1: Mm -hmm. Pretty much all of that class of research that I came across said yoga in most cases is super helpful, but not a single study says that it should be the only thing you're doing for your trauma. Um, that basically it should be in addition to something else. Uh, Do you think that's true as well?
2: I think that's true. And I think it'll help if we talk about the frontline responses to treating trauma, just very, very briefly before we touch base on yoga and yoga's role in treatment. And I just want to put the caveat on this, that none of this is medical advice Mm. If you are looking at treatment, changes to treatment, medication, stuff like that, do consult with your physician, your counselor, your psychiatrist. I can guarantee you working in the field that the vast majority of them are far more open-minded and willing to look at different things than we often give them credit for. Cool. So when it comes to treating trauma, the main treatment first is always psychological treatment. And when you say that, that's the more talk-based therapy models. So there's a few leading ones that are the evidence-based pieces for treating PTSD and adjustment disorders, and those are cognitive processing therapy, which is similar to cognitive behavioral therapy, but working on processing it through a cognitive and more objective lens to mm-hmm. a certain point. A lot of the time we go through very terrifying situations and Looking at it through an objective and very strict lens can actually help us process it because we're looking at it in a less emotional sense, and that can be hugely beneficial when we think of, you know, how safe were we in a situation? How do we get out? Mm. What are the likelihoods it's going to happen again? Because often we expect something's going to happen again, and the odds of it happening again are extremely low, especially when we're in physical injury-type settings.
1: Interesting. So, like, if we were talking about a car accident, would an approach be something along the lines of, This is a percentage of car accidents that happen a year. This is how likely you are to be in a car accident. This increases this much if it's raining. These are things you can do to help be a defensive driver and avoid car accidents. Is that the kind of thing that would happen?
2: Things like that. And also just that you're often a lot safer in situations than you think you are. Mm -hmm. We're quite resilient. And the safety mechanisms built into our world are really good now. Mm. So, you know, things like if you get in a small fender bender, you're probably going to be physically okay. Mm -hmm. Even if it's something that's very terrifying, you've been in a bad one. Mm -hmm. The other ones are prolonged exposure. Mm -hmm. So that's bringing people around triggers and the actual trauma, traumatic situations and locations. Because a lot of the time you're going to need to be around those situations. If it's around people, works, different locations, it's doing a graduated and prolonged response to slowly increasing you to that. So Mm -hmm. someone's having difficulty with crowds, kind of getting them more outside might be a first step into stores where there's less people and eventually kind of into more crowded situations and Mm -hmm. working on the responses to those in the moment. Mm -hmm. Um, And, one of the most popular ones being EMDR, so the eye movement. I always mess it up, derealization <laughs> therapy. And that's where you'll see it's either like lights or touches on different sides of the body while working on processing the event. The science, I can't speak to what the specific sciences. And it is one of those where we're learning a lot more as we go. Mm -hmm. And it's a great example of something that started as a quote unquote woo medicine and is now becoming (laughs) evidence-based practice. But
1: that's something I would call yoga science in class friends. Yeah.
2: (laughs) And now it's becoming evidence-based practice and a growing frontline treatment. The idea Mm -hmm. being that you're activating both sides of your brain Mm -hmm. while you're processing through the events. And that can help theoretically with processing it. And you see good response to that. Aside from that, pharmacological treatment, so with medication, is a huge piece of treating traumatic injuries. Mm -hmm. So, you know, frontline antidepressants, um, anti-anxiety medications, sleep is a huge Mm. issue. Um, So is this
1: even things like taking melatonin to help you sleep? Like that's a herbal supplement, but...
2: Anywhere from heavy sleep medications in early stages, Mm -hmm. um, though a lot of clinicians like to stay away from those just because of risk of addiction. Mm -hmm. Even some like prazosin and such, which are you know, medications for heart and hypertension and things like that, but they just also found that people had reduced nightmares and night terrors when they were yeah. taking it. And once again, talk to your doctor if you have questions about medications. I'm not a physician, so I'm mm-hmm. not the best person, but those are essentially the frontline treatments for trauma. Mm-hmm. These can be in group or individual settings, but... That is essentially where we go, and it ranges from psychologists, psychiatrists, occupational therapists, registered clinical counselors, all have huge roles in forming.
1: I think even religious leaders, like if you have like a, a rabbi or, or someone um, of your faith, are often trained in, in situations like this.
2: Absolutely, and a lot of I think religious... none of us
1: are religious, I should say. So. No.
2: <laughs> I've worked with spiritual care practitioners as well, and a lot of—there's different levels of training and different— Face, But there's also important to note that a lot of theological practitioners, and this is coming from someone who doesn't identify with their religion, are incredible skilled clinicians with very much evidence based treatment models. Mm. They're looking at it through a spiritual lens. And for a lot of people, that's what they need. And that's what speaks to them.
1: All right. So those are the, as you said, frontline treatments. These are the things you should do first, especially if you find, I would say, trauma that's affecting your daily life. Um, you need to consult a physician, etc., cetera, uh, to get a frontline treatment before you consider other things. Is that a good assessment? Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's why
2: it's important to speak to a clinician because there are heavy things that, well, they're not always pleasant to talk about, but things like self-harm and suicide come up. Mm -hmm. higher than in the average population with people experiencing trauma. Mm -hmm. And that's where those people, they have the training to work with that. They have the training to look at that and are safe spaces to work with on that.
1: Yeah. And we'll circle to this a little bit early. Trauma-informed yoga instructing is a thing. You can go to a full training for this. Um, It's on my list of things to do this year. I haven't taken this training, but um, that's some of the things you learned. We've touched on it briefly in both the teacher trainings I've done about how a trauma can affect the body and how to address that with your students, um, but not in a really intentional way. And I, I'd like to learn more about that. So that's on my list. But I think that's an important shout out for the teachers listening that we do not have the training to deal with big traumatic responses. And I think it would be irresponsible to pretend otherwise if we don't have the tools to continue helping our students after they leave the room. Uh, do you agree with that?
2: I would agree. And even like in clinical settings, there's times where I know that there's cans of worms that you don't want to open Mm. because a good rule with working with trauma is once you open it, it's really hard or impossible to close it. Mm -hmm. And if there's people who have higher risk to themselves, you need to know that you have supports and planning in place when you're exploring those things. And it can be a delicate thing. And the most important thing, I think, when we come to trauma-informed practice and trauma-informed settings of any kind it's not about curing or solving it. It's about creating a safe space for people who have trauma mm-hmm. and being informed of the resources and stuff out there to address them, so even if you're one of those resources.
1: Yeah. So which sort of resources would you say for yoga teachers that we should be aware of to share with their students just in case? Like have in our back pocket, keep in a note on our phone. So if a student comes to us and says you know, maybe they're thinking of self-harm, maybe they've gone through um, a certain situation that we are not equipped to deal with. Which sort of resources would you think we should have to provide those students with?
2: Absolutely. Um, First and foremost, local crisis line. And even if you're in a small community without a local crisis line, 1-800-SUICIDE, wherever you are in the country, will connect you to crisis resources. Mm -hmm. And even if it's not particularly relating to suicide, they're going to have a better shot of where to connect you to. Other mental health concerns, local health authority offices are an easy and simple resource where they can just be directed to the intake line. Mm -hmm. When it comes to things like sexual violence Mm -hmm. or violence involving children, then a lot of the Battered Women's Society and more and more Battered Men's Society groups, and those are the best resources to get people to and make sure that they know, you know, that they're safe to contact those settings and Mm -hmm. that it's okay that, they have those feelings, and it's not their fault that they have feelings.
1: Yeah, so so sort of be ready to say what you're going through is valid, and I'm so, so sorry, and here's a number that I know someone will be better trained than me to help you and let me know if I can support you when once you've contacted them. Yes. Is that the appropriate response?
2: Yes, and just to be mindful, too, that if, especially in B.C., if someone discloses something to you involving children or minors, mm. every citizen, 18 and over, is obligated to report that.
1: Legally mandated. Legally
2: obligated, yeah. and... Unlikely, But if something happens, you can be liable. So it's good to be in mind of that when you're mm-hmm. creating a setting that's mm-hmm. safe, a trauma-informed setting that you're also aware of the implications that you need to be prepared for if you're making it a safe setting for people to be more open.
1: Yeah. I think we're making this all sound really scary. <laughs> like these things that have not happened to me personally. I know they've happened to other teachers that I know. Um, but let's let's get a little less serious, I yeah. think. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about what yoga can do to help the frontline treatments. Uh, so... Like I said, I looked into studies. They all basically said this is an addition to your frontline treatment, not a replacement for. But I've seen a lot of success with students uh, practicing yoga and particularly hatha yoga. So, Bikram is hatha uh, or a yin based practice. So, the longer, slower, gentler holds. Um, Stephen, I know that you looked up how trauma can show up in yoga. Do you want to touch on that a little bit? Okay.
0: Yeah, I did find some things here of, of how yoga can actually uh, trigger trauma. And one of the first things, and this is actually kind of self-evident and kind of obvious, but uh, if a posture is just held for too long.
1: Yeah, and uh, James, you could touch on this better than me, but do you think that would just be because if you're holding in a posture too long that is difficult for you, that spikes your parasympathetic nervous system?
2: Or it spikes the sympathetic, yeah. I mean, Sorry. <laughs> any <laughs> k- any kind of physical strain also puts you into that can put you into a sympathetic nervous system state. I mean, Mm -hmm. that's part of just going for a run and a higher heart rate. You're Mm -hmm. in a different state. You're not in a parasympathetic state then. Mm -hmm. That's definitely a part of it. And just intensity on the body. And intensity is a subjective thing to people.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you think there's some legitimacy to um, what you hear sometimes from yoga teachers is that Right now you're on your mat. Your sympathetic nervous system is activated. You are stressed and you're learning, you're teaching your brain, your body how to deal with your stress. So when you're off your mat and you get stressed, you're better at it. Do you think there's any truth to that?
2: I think there's fairness to that. Anything that increases your ability to put yourself into a more de-stressed state and take you out of sympathetic activation that's not necessary is good. Mm-hmm. And that's a huge skill set to put yourself into that has huge crossover. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and as an example, I'm just thinking about chair pose, just just holding <laughs> holding that sucker for a long time.
1: Because we know you hate chair pose. Yeah. Absolutely,
0: <laughs>
2: I was thinking of dragon.
0: <laughs> well, you're talking to two people who love dragon on this end of the table down here. Yeah.
2: Well, I see, can see on my watch my stress levels going up in dragon. I know that. Karen can stay in it for 30 minutes and be happy as a claim. <laughs> oh,
0: oh, no, and absolutely valid
2: on your end, too. So.
1: Um, yeah, and I, I can't even touch on that a little bit. I, I looked at it a little more. So when you're stressed, one of the things that happens physically is your psoas gets tight. So your psoas connects your upper body and lower body, so the, the breath and diaphragm to the legs. Um, and it makes... Uh, it can really affect your posture as well. So if your psoas is really tight, you're going to get some lower back pain. Your pelvis is going to be out of whack, blah, blah, blah. Um, but like nestled in your psoas, that's where your kidneys are, and that's also where your adrenal glands are, which control your your sympathetic nervous system, your fight-or-flight-or-freeze-or-fawn response. Um, so if your hips are tight, when you're coming into a long, long dragon posture, it makes sense. You're stretching out your psoas again. You're going to trigger that fight or flight or or freeze or fawn response in the posture, and probably the reason i 'm more comfortable in it than than I think you guys would be is that I spend so much time in it on purpose like i I, I hang out there on purpose because I know it 's effective, and I think probably I have less trauma being triggered in it, I have less stress being triggered in it because i 've already trained my brain to understand that it 's okay and it 's going to be better at the end of it. Um, that makes sense as well, right James? Mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: Uh, Some others I'll just touch on briefly here. Um, Physical assistance without uh, permission.
1: And at the studio, we have a policy to never do it. Um, Since COVID, I think we, during COVID, we stopped hands-on assists entirely. I think we're doing them a little bit now, but it's very much like if I wanted to come adjust even, for myself personally, I would say, Stephen, can I put my hand on your shoulder to to show you where to? Like, I would be very spe- that specific about. I'm going to touch your left shoulder with my hand. Is that okay? Um, and then when you do it, a good rule of thumb is to use two fingers because that's enough to show the student what their body should be doing without actually potentially harming them uh, physically. So. <laughs> yeah hands on assists are a really tricky thing I know other studios will do something like you grab a button on the way in and you have that on your mat up upright if you want physical assist and down if you don't um there's lots of things like that but I think here at our studio we basically just make sure we have permission um and you know if this is at our studio for sure if this is something you will never want ever please feel free to tell someone at the front desk we can put that note on your file so a teacher will never ask you you don't ever have to clarify it just won't ever happen
2: Yeah, and I think it's a personal bias for me, but I think things like what the studio does where you just don't do it, Mm -hmm. and if you do, you then would seek consent. I prefer that over things like the buttons and stuff, because even if no one's going to think because your button's up that you've had experienced assault, someone who's experienced an assault or experienced unwanted touching, their perception, and a lot of the time we all think this way too, their perception is if I do this, people are going to know. That's true. And there's often yeah. so much shame that people feel attached to that. Mm-hmm. That that can be something where people feel outed or unsafe to do that. Yeah. And a good key piece for trauma-informed practice is is not knowing what trauma people have had, but creating a safe space for anyone who's experienced trauma because the assumption is that everyone's had some kind of trauma.
1: I think that's a good assumption, yeah. And I'll even go further and clarify, I wouldn't even ask if I could do a hands-on adjustment unless it was someone like Steven that I've known for years or you, it was a friend of mine, like I know you guys are okay if I touch you or you feel comfortable saying no to me if Mm. I asked. Um, So, if you are a longtime student of mine, you can tell me the hands-on adjust or not. Like I'm, I'm open to that conversation. Um, you can also ask your teacher if you're in Warrior Two and you're not sure where your shoulders are supposed to be. You can say to your teacher, "Hey, can you push my shoulder in the right direction?" Um, that's okay. You can ask for that as well. Yeah.
2: And setting the safe, setting the safe standard to students too that if I ask you if I can do an adjustment, you can say no and yeah. feel free to say no yeah. because. There is a power dynamic in the teacher and student, Mm -hmm. and just being in the presence of other people is a power dynamic that plays to the teacher, and just making sure that people are informed that that's a perfectly okay and safe thing to do is Mm -hmm. a good way to help create safety.
1: Well, and and sort of dovetailing off that, I like to say a lot when I'm teaching, you are in complete control of what happens on your mat. Um, The etiquette rule in yoga is you never step on another person's mat or even over a mat and if I'm walking around the room while I'm teaching I do my best to stay the heck away from your mat like this is your island you're there by yourself no one's gonna come on it no one's gonna touch you unless you're okay with it Um, so I think that's something to remember as well.
0: Uh, What also can be triggering is certain breath work as well like pranayama.
1: Yeah which was weird for me I think because of my musical background I'm used to being told, like, you have to fit all your breath into this one heartbeat, and I'm, I'm fine with that because I've done that my whole life. Um, but it was interesting. When I was at teacher training, it was more than half the room. So these are longtime yoga practitioners that have chosen to pay a lot of money to become yoga teachers. At least half of them said that it makes them uncomfortable when they're told when to inhale and exhale. Like, they can get panicky, it makes them uncomfortable, and it's not good. Um, and they, there was even a few of them that say they never listen to breath cues. If they're told to inhale for a count of three, they just ignore it flat out. I want this to be me saying, giving permission to people to ignore that. Like, if that's traumatic for you, please ignore breath work. Um, I don't know. Has that ever been traumatic for you, James? Or like upsetting for you to be told when to breathe?
2: I mean, it's upsetting being told what to do by you. (laughs) Um, On a more serious note, no, for me, it's not. But when you were saying that, I was just reflecting on... You know, a lot of healthcare event trauma, so, you know, if someone's ever been picked up by paramedics or given birth, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of command over your body and command over breathing specifically, and that Mm -hmm. can be a potential trigger. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people just have hard past memories of -hmm. being told what to do, and you're in an instructional setting being told what to do, Mm -hmm. that definitely makes sense as an easy trigger. It doesn't trigger me, so I've never thought of that in practice. Yeah,
1: Yeah, so we have an episode on breath coming out, so listen to that more. Like, there is tons of benefits to different breathing exercises, but also please feel free to disregard any or all of them if it's not working for you in that moment or ever.
0: Yeah, I think this was a little hard for us to wrap our heads around just because we haven't experienced it ourselves.
1: Yeah, personally, it's not a triggering thing to me at all, um, but it, it totally is valid if it is for you, and that's okay. So... And, and in the same vein as sometimes my doctor has to lecture me and remind me that pain is bad for your body as well. So you have to take pills because I don't want to take as many pills as I should. Um, the stress of being told when to breathe will override the benefits of breathing how we tell you to breathe. So you should do what's right for your body in that moment and trust that you know what you
2: need. And a safety thing just to interject too is kind of coming to the central nervous system piece that we've talked about so much your body will make you breathe enough to keep you alive. And I think that's. there's lots of ways to optimize our breathing. I know it's something I need to work on in my practice as I recognize Karen's glare when I'm not breathing. (laughs) But... Your body will keep you alive and safe. And oh, it's designed to keep you alive and safe. And she knows. <laughs> I do knows. know. I yes. do
1: know. Um, and I will say that if breathwork is something that you want to work with, especially like the breathing exercise at the end of Bikram. I know a lot of people have difficulty with that. Your instructor would love to help you with that. If, that's, if it's just something you have difficulty with but emotionally you're okay with it, chat with your teacher. We would love to talk to you about breathing.
0: I'll just touch on a few other ways that yoga can actually trigger some trauma here, but uh, this one here might be a difficult one for some people to swallow, especially at this studio who really enjoy the Bikram practice, but an artificially heated environment that exceeds the natural body temperature can be triggering to some people.
1: Yeah, do you have a thought on that, James?
0: I mean, heat can cause heart rate increases, for
2: one. Not... The science I'm not as sharp on because I know it can also increase in significant cold. Mm -hmm. But our heart rates are higher when we're running or exercising in heat. Mm -hmm. I have a bit more background around running with that. Mm -hmm. But that is something, too, where also people with trauma often have higher heart rates, Mm -hmm. especially with traumatic injuries. Your resting heart rate is increased due to that. Mm-hmm. Activation and that's so it was a almost thing. a
0: compounding effect on on something that's already kind of established and yeah. might be like a new baseline for them.
2: Well, and this is where the yoga experts can correct yeah. me if I'm wrong, but hot yoga is intentionally in a higher temperature than we would normally be mm-hmm. working in, and environmental changes outside of our body's comfort zones do trigger stress responses. And having stress responses is helpful and something that our bodies learn to adapt to and is necessary for our lives and functioning. But that for someone with trauma, that may be a triggering setting where it increased that. And mm-hmm. that may also be a part of a goal of your treatment to increase your ability for exposure to those things.
1: That's an interesting point. And, and I think it tracks with what I see from students. Sometimes I'll see students come in and you can see the the emotional stress in their body. Like they're, they're tense, their shoulders or earrings. Like it, you can physically see it. Um, and as they take, even if they're taking Pyro Pilates or they're taking Bikram, they're taking the intense hot classes, you see it drop off of their body after a while. Um, I think we've had plenty of new students who would not come anywhere near a yin class, near the beginning of their yoga journey, purely because sitting with yourself for that long in that much quiet is not easy. So, I think it's okay if you want to come to a hot practice because it's going to help relax your muscles. Like that that is true. So, so that tightening of your muscles, that intensity, the heat will help with that, but Only insofar as if you're able to calm yourself down during the practice. Um, One of the things that I've had to do for myself, if I'm feeling particularly anxious that day in a hot class, is I will have to actively remind myself that I know in this studio we have constant fresh oxygen pumping into the room. It feels like you can't breathe because it's hot and it's humid, and it feels like you're not getting enough oxygen, but I have to logically, physically remind myself that I I am. So if that's a tip that works for you, I I hope that helps. Um, But like you said, it is valid if this triggers a response to you. And it's okay if that's something you want to explore just as exposure.
0: Okay. And uh, one last one that I'll uh, uh, get into, but definitely not uh, not limited to just this one here. But uh, any yoga postures that aggressively open the hips?
1: Yeah, so part of that is the psoas-adrenal gland situation that we mentioned before. If you like talking about chakras, your sacral chakra is there, and and that can make you feel really unstable if there's a lot of tension in the area. You have really big, thick fascia through your hips to support standing and walking. Um, So if that's really tight from stress... Oh, hip openers are going to suck, long story short. And you physically won't be able to do some of them. Like, if you can't sit cross-legged on the ground... It could be because of your hips. It could be because of stress and tension in your hips, Um, or at least partially. The other one that I know you want to watch out for is any sort of heart openers. So if your chest is forward, your shoulders are back, that is going to raise your heart rate, increase anxiety, etc. That is all very, very normal. Um, Again, in my yoga teacher life, I am told to tell students that training your body's stress response to a heart opener helps you to respond to stress off your mat And James, you're saying there is some validity to that? Yeah. Yeah, he's nodding. I do think I want to say, though, that if you have extra anxiety or trauma that day or you're just not feeling emotionally great, you might want to not do a super deep backbend or a super deep hip opener. Um, My camels in a Bikram practice often are just me with my hands on my lower, lower, lower back, like in my jean pockets, and me looking at the ceiling. That is the extent of my backbend. Because if I'm having a rough day, I just end up crying every single time I do camel.
0: (laughs) So there's some realness for you. <laughs>
1: um, I
0: get a head rush and I get very dizzy in camel, so I don't really do it. So,
1: so blood pressure. There you go. Mm. So so it's all the same thing. It, it is real, friends. So um, be kind to yourself. And if you are maybe having an extra difficult day with an emotional injury, is that a good term, James? Yeah, that's a yeah. uh, Maybe you be a little more gentle with hip openers or chest openers. And again, especially at our studio, you can feel free to come to me and say, hey, like, I had a bad day at work. I'm not in a good mood. I'm not going to do many hip or chest openers. I'm going to say, cool, I'm really happy you're supporting yourself. Um, And maybe even give you some other tips on how to proceed with your practice. So one thing I've been doing in my practice lately that I just want to leave us with is one last tip. Uh, And one thing I've been encouraging my students to do is have lots of physical touch with themselves. So if they're having an extra stressful day, I'll say to put their hands, palms down on their body. Do you have any idea why that works?
0: (laughs) I've often wondered why, too. So,
1: Yeah.
2: I, without going too deep in it, I'll say this is a personal challenge of mine. Oh, interesting, um, yeah. But your body has a stress response, and the evidence base for somatic treatment is still earlier mm-hmm. um, for treating the body to treat psychological issues. Mm-hmm. And personally, my bias is that it would be a part of, not a curative mm-hmm. picture. Mm-hmm. But your body does respond, and sometimes treating the way your body responds can help with the psychological response. That's interesting. So I know that if I am getting stressed or anxious, I feel tightness in the center of my chest, Mm. like towards the bottom of my rib cage. Mm -hmm. And that's being mindful of that is a cue for when I'm becoming Mm -hmm. more stressed before I'm consciously aware of it. Mm -hmm. But it's also a cue that I find if I focus on it and focus on trying to push away some of that physical tension Mm. That improves my stress state as well.
1: Interesting. So that works for you. I think I've read a little bit of evidence that specifically contact with your own body. So if your hands are palms down, if you can dig your fingers into your body, or even just Um, a constant pressure on your body. So things like putting a pillow underneath your ribs, even if you don't need it in a posture, Um, because our bodies are constantly trying to figure out what's going on around us, especially if our sympathetic nervous system is activated, if we're freaked out, um, we're looking for constant threats. If you have a pillow touching half your body, that's half your body that your brain doesn't have to worry about. Does that all sound right to you?
2: (laughs) It does. And I think just anecdotally, the same way you might... Jack your friend up to lift a heavy weight by slapping her back a bunch or oh, interesting even in like you 'll see in like high level lifting, people slap each other 's face to get them just in that like jacked up strong mm-hmm. state mm-hmm. Yep. it stands to Definitely reason that the opposite response <laughs> yeah. also has validity in trying to put yourself into a calmer state
1: yeah yeah that 's really interesting and and you can even talk about this in in regards to specific postures, so things like a twisting posture, especially if it 's reclined, is putting pressure on your internal organs which also get tense when your fight or flight or freeze or fawn response is activated uh so do you have any thoughts on that yoga science explanation james <laughs> that pressure to the internal organs do you think that it could help people's stress response or do you, is that just so far out of your that's
2: so far out of my purview
1: fair enough that's totally fair so yoga science wise that is something that is real but that's going to be a later episode that we follow up on and talk about more
0: yeah, we touched on quite a number of topics uh, on this episode here tonight, so I'm actually little looking forward to doing this again in the future. So
1: Yeah, I think we'll have to have you back one day, James, because it was so nice to have your education and, and personal stance on it, too.
0: Definitely. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and I'll I'll extend another thank you to James as well too. We d- uh, definitely tried to make this one happen for about a month and <laughs> a, a number of things happened that got in the way of that and uh, thank you for your time, James. Absolutely. Thank you for the opportunity.
1: Yeah, it was so nice to have you. So um, as always, if you have any questions, please feel free to, get, to let us know. We know this is a big one, so if you do need some support, we're going to put some of the uh, support lines that we mentioned in our, our, our show notes. Yeah,
0: they will be in there, so just reach out if you need any help and know that you're not alone.
1: Yeah, and, and to the extent that we can help, we would love to help and, and we hope you are all safe and we're so thankful that you helped to create a safe safe star studio for all the students that come in.
0: Thanks everyone. Have a good night.
1: Have a wonderful night.